0: been doing over January the last few years, the series called Promises That Propel, where we look at particular promises of God found in the scriptures uh, that if held to and embraced and lived by, uh, should help us to grow into maturity into Christ. And today the promise that we're looking at is, we have a sympathetic high priest. So we're going to come before the Lord in prayer that I ask that he might minister to us through his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we know that we're weak. We know that you are all-powerful, all-knowing, yet you call us to come boldly before you with confidence, not because of our achievements, but because of the achievements of your Son and his abundant grace, mercy and sympathy. But we pray that uh, the very reasons why you inspired the writer of Hebrews to write these words would minister to us, that we might know what we have in Christ, what he has done, and Lord, how that encourages and ministers to us in our times of trials, temptation and need. Uh, so work in and through your word by your holy spirit in every single one of us we ask in jesus name amen you know how it is with some people and let's face it also some pets when they've done the wrong thing it's just so obvious by their demeanor my kids aren't really good at hiding it if they've done the wrong thing neither is my dog our dog, Chloe, has got this particular table. If she's done something wrong or if she's got something she shouldn't have, she goes under this little table. And the idea is if you try to get it from one side, she goes out that way. If you try to go around the other side, she goes out the other way. But why do people do that? Why do dogs, even a dog, have this sense of guilt when they've done the wrong thing? Why is it that people aren't good at hiding it when they've asked, have you done this? And they've got this... Oops, this look on their face as God created us he created every single one of us with a conscience with an awareness of right and wrong of guilt and innocence but often it is for people and for your pets it's kind of like this innate fear of what will happen if somebody finds out Now, for every single parent and every single pet owner, guess what? They are not perfect. They are people who are also sinful, also weak, yet we fear them finding out about our shortcomings and our weaknesses. Imagine how much worse you might feel. If your parents or or if your pet if your owners, not that there's any pets here in the building, might be some watching on Zoom, who knows. What if they were perfect or faultless? Would that change how you felt before them? Because when we carry this attitude over to our relationship with God, that is, oh no, he's perfect, can I can't let him know what's going on, not only will that be extremely unhealthy. That will be thoroughly detrimental to your spiritual health. In Hebrews chapter 4, in the verses just before the part that we had read, the author said these words Let us strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sword of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Every single detail about us, even the stuff that the people closest to us don't know, every single thought, every single motive, every single thing done with nobody else watching. He knows, is exposed completely and perfectly before a perfect and holy God. But rather than the author of Hebrews telling us to go hide under that special table, he provides us with words of comfort and encouragement. He says, You have a sympathetic high priest. Now we're going to focus primarily on, as I said, from chapter four, verses fourteen to sixteen. We'll make some reference to uh, those ten verses in chapter five that kind of unpack a little bit more the nature of Jesus' high priest and of his uniqueness in comparison to the high priest that they've known under the old covenant. But we're going to work through these just these three verses. As we're provided with three reasons or encouragements. Firstly, to hold fast to the confession in verse 14. To remember that he is able to sympathise with all of our weaknesses, verse 15. And therefore we should draw near with confidence in verse 16. And then what might seem slightly at odds, speaking about what it means to live as a people who are confidently weak. Firstly, holding fast to the confession. In that very first verse, there are two things One, he reminds us of a reality. He reminds us of a reality. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. And calls us to a response. So let us hold fast to our confession. Notice the author of Hebrews does not say, There is a great high priest. He says, We have When you turn from your sin and you place your trust in Jesus, you don't just get his forgiveness, you don't just get his benefits, you get him. You are not only in Christ, but you have Christ. And this Christ, the, the author of Hebrews says, is the great high priest. And throughout the book of Hebrews, you'll notice that the author uses this word great on a number of occasions to make something distinct and unique from everything they've known before. Here they speak of Jesus as a great high priest, one who is distinct and unique, unlike any of the Aaronic priests that they've had before. The one who is the great shepherd of the sheep in chapter 13. The one who brings a great salvation Chapter 2, verse 3. Jesus is not only above all else, but he's totally unique and other from all else. This Jesus is described as the Son of God, who is our great high priest. Our high priest who is not only given all rule, power, and authority and above all else, but who uniquely serves in a high priestly way very different than those who had gone before. His high priestly service was unique. The high priest under the old covenant on one day of the year would come into the Holy of Holies to offer a sacrifice not only for their own sin, but for the sins of the nation. Whereas Jesus does not pass through a veil into a particular building. But by his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father, he has gone into the heavenly sanctuary with an offering that has been completed once for all time. Unlike the high priests who've gone beforehand, who used to go into the Holy of Holies with trepidation and fear, wondering if what if my offering is not good enough? What if I am struck dead? And even still, those high priests had to leave and come back year after year after year. Yet Jesus, who ascended in his resurrection, seated at the right hand of God, the author of Hebrews says in chapter 10, when Christ had offered for all time a single offering, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down because the work of atonement was complete. There was nothing more that needed to be done. It had been finished for all time. And of this Jesus, the author reminds us, and himself, we should hold fast to the confession. Now back in chapter 3, verse 1, he speaks of of a confession of Jesus as our apostle and a high priest of our confession. As in his apostle, he was the one who was sent for us. The one who was sent to deal with the problem of our sin. But the one who was also ascended. Who was seated at the right hand of the Father with all rule, power and authority and in his high priestly capacity not only has offered the perfect sacrifice for sin for all time but who intercedes forevermore for his people so never forget in all of your struggles all of your temptations all of your trials he has done everything needed to deal with your sin once And for all. And he's seated at the right hand with all authority interceding for you. If you are in Christ, you could not be in a more secure setting. You couldn't be in safer hands. So, in all of our struggles, Hold fast to what we know to be true about who Jesus is. Hold fast to what we know to be true about what he has done and what he continues to do that secures your position in him. Because not only has he acted for you, you have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. But there's more not just the sake knives, he is able to sympathise with our weaknesses. If the first thing of verse 15 was hold fast to the confession, cling on with all of your life to what you know about who he is and what he has done, the second verse deals with how does he help us in the middle of our trials and temptations. says we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin it's more than just trusting what jesus has done at all past tense he actively continually sympathizes with our weaknesses In earlier chapters, he spoke about how he had become made like our brothers in every respect. Jesus, in his incarnation, yes, was fully God, and he was also fully man. He was subject to the weaknesses and the temptations that that are prone to humanity. Some people question, say, well, he's not completely like Man. Well, he's exactly what man was created to be like. He's exactly like Adam was created to be like in perfect submission to the Father. But where it says in verse 15, who was tempted in every respect, it doesn't mean that he was tempted with every single possible temptation that could ever happen. It doesn't say one day he was driving along, he saw a speed sign, he thought, oh, there's no cops around, I'm going to floor it but that he was tempted to the full extent to which any human could experience temptation. Now, we've got one piano in this room, but apparently if we had two of them, if you strike a note on that one, it'll actually ring out that same note on the other one. The expression of that is called sympathetic resonance. And it's just the way it resonates, it resonates on the same thing over there and they produce the same note. It's kind of like the image of what Jesus is giving us here is we struggle with our weaknesses that resonates in him who has experienced the fullness of temptation. Our struggles with our trials and our weaknesses resonate in the heart of the Son of God who is seated on the throne, the throne of grace. Now some people think, how on earth Can Jesus sympathise with me if he never sinned? How can he have any clue what it's like to sympathise with someone like me who gives in to temptation from time to time? Who who gives in to weakness? I like the way C.S. Lewis explains it in his book, Mere Christianity. He says this, A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like in an hour later. That's why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full extent what temptation means, the only complete Realist. That makes it pretty clear, doesn't it? We come to him, we find sympathy and strength in him because he knows what it likes to endure it. If we want to deal with the problems of our temptations and our sin, the example, of the one we want to go to, is the one who's experienced it to all of its fullness without sinning. But where do we naturally tend to go during our times of temptation and trial? I think, if we're honest, for a lot of people, it'll be a, a close friend a, or a group of friends. In other words, our first portal call becomes to go to another person or another group of people who you share a common unity in that yielding to temptation, giving in. They might be a great sympathiser of what it feels like to give in to temptation for the guilt and the regret that's associated with that. But hopefully, too, there can be someone who can sympathise and point you to how that caused them to repent, how it turned them back to Jesus, how they came boldly before his throne to find grace and mercy in their time of need. But you will not, and you cannot, find a greater sympathizer in the midst of your weakness than Jesus Christ, the one who endured it to its full extent and without sin. He is able to sympathize," it says, verse fifteen, in chapter two, verse eighteen. He says, "Because he's been tempted in every way, he is able to help." Chapter 5, verse 2, he's able to deal gently. Chapter 7, verse 25, he's able to save completely. In chapter 10, verses 1 and 11, he's able to perfect the conscience of those who belong to him. In chapter 5, verses 7 to 10, when he's making a comparison between the priests of Aaron and Jesus, He speaks about how the priests of Aaron would continually offer sacrifices coming in and out. Yet Jesus, on the other hand, offers up prayers for himself in the garden. One who continues to offer up prayers and intercede for us, seated at the right hand of God. And the author says in chapter 5, and through his obedience... Secured an eternal salvation. I think far too often we pray half of what Jesus prayed in the garden. We pray the half, Father, take this from me. But we need to say, Father, I want this taken from me, but not my will, but your will be done. So you're often, trials and temptation can be a blessing. Because Jesus remained obedient, didn't give in to the, to the easy route, not only did he secure an eternal salvation, he, he learned obedience by enduring through suffering. Temptations and trials are designed to grow us, to help us to know what it means to grow in faith, to grow in obedience. Through endurance. And in the middle of that endurance, struggling between what might seem like a tumultuous wind of temptation and trial that seems far too overbearing, we have a sympathetic high priest who has been tempted to the full spectrum, the full extent, yet without sin, who is not only sympathetic, but who is able to help who endured a much greater temptation than either of us will ever experience, not only without sin, but according to the same strength and resources that we have available to us. So then, let us draw near to him with confidence. We've seen we need to remember who he is, what he has done, We need to recall we have a sympathetic high priest. There is no one greater to help us in our time of need. Therefore, he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. He doesn't say come sheepishly. He doesn't say, this guy is perfect, so you come now with your little knees knocking together in fear of what he might do. He says, come boldly to the one who sympathises with all weaknesses and the one who is able to help. Draw near to his throne, to the one who has all rule, power and authority, that throne of grace. so that you'll get a guilt trip so that you'll feel worse so he can give you a backhand no come to him in repentance with confidence drawing near that you'll receive mercy and find grace to help in the times of need to receive mercy that is to not receive what we deserve for our actions but also to receive grace to receive his goodness that we don't deserve and to receive his help in our time of need. Know who he is, know what he's done, know you have a sympathetic high priest and come confidently to him. We are a confidently weak people. So we, that's a weird-sounding thought, isn't it? To be confident and weak. They're probably not two words that people put together side by side very often. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians in chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says that he will gladly boast in his weakness. In the following chapter, chapter 12, verses 9 to 10, he says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that by the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. As a result of the fall, all of us are beset with weakness. It's part of the human condition as the result of the fall of Adam and Eve. But weakness does not mean that we are hopeless and that we are constantly in despair. Despite the fact that we have a perfect and holy God who sees every single hidden thought and everything done in the dark, we have a perfect and sympathetic high priest who has been tempted to the full extent to which anyone can be tempted, yet without sin. Now that doesn't mean, in what I'm saying this morning, that we should not care about our sin. Let's go, oh sin it's all sorted out. We should care about our sin. We should care about the offense that it is to our God. We should care about the fact that it's our sin that, that took him to the cross. As we afford to become more and more like Christ, our attitude towards sin should be Christ's attitude towards sin. In fact, because we find sin repulsive, we should take seriously the advice the author of Hebrews gives us. Remember who he is, what he has done. Remember that he is a sympathetic high priest who is able to help. So in all of your weakness, recognising your need of him and his sympathy and the strength that he provides, come boldly to the throne of grace for help. We are weak, but we are confident. Not confident because we've got to a certain level where we've got the hang of things, but because we are confident in what he has done, who he is, His ability to sympathise with every weakness that we do not need to come to him with a sense of shame and trepidation, but we come to him in confidence to find mercy and grace and help in times of need according to his mighty power within us. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we confess that Too often we don't make you the first and foundational place we go in the middle of our weakness. So often we seek to find comfort in other weak vessels. Yes, we are called to minister to one another. But may it be to point one another continually back to Christ. That we would look to him in all things that we would look to him in the middle of our trials and temptations knowing his sympathetic disposition towards us his willingness and ability to help according to his power and his strength we thank you that even when we fail and we do that when we come to, to you In repentance and faith, we don't need to come sheepishly, but confidently. Confidently because of the completed work of Jesus. Because of his nature, his character to sympathise, to be merciful and to be gracious. And to restore those who trust in him for all things. In whose precious name we pray, Amen.